Hello, I'm Laura Castleton, U.S. Head of Portfolio Construction and Strategy at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of brighter futures for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. Market moving insight and analysis. Join Jim Cramer, David Faber, and me, Carl Quintanilla, on the opening bell hour of CNBC Squawk on the Street. Good Friday morning. Welcome to Squawk on the Street. I'm Carl Quintanilla with Scott Wapner and Leslie Picker as Jim Cramer and David Faber have the morning off. Futures are red, uh, although the S&P and the Nasdaq are shooting for their fourth week higher and the Dow only needs a couple hundred points to join them. It is busy for an August Friday as the market watches for signs of stimulus compromise this weekend. Our roadmap begins with the record-setting week. What are the risks to the rally? Plus, Tesla on a tear set to open at a record high after topping $2,000 for the first time. And Democrats demanding answers. The embattled postmaster general testifying this hour amid a political furor surrounding policy changes ahead of the November election. Guys, it's going to be an interesting morning to sort of take stock of where we've been over the past couple of days. Uh, the S&P all-time high, Apple $2 trillion, Scott, Tesla $2K. Even though B of A this morning says that weekly outflows look like they may be the biggest in about 15 weeks, despite some of these new highs. Yeah. And maybe this is the week, Carl, where technology said, you know, wait a, wait a minute, not so fast growth. I mean, not so fast value. Right. Everybody's been coming out of the woodwork trying to make these calls that there's going to be this great rotation, Carl, from growth into value stocks and these cyclical and, and epicenter names, as Tom Lee has coined them. NASDAQ new record high, NASDAQ 100 new record high, Tesla reminding everybody how we got here in the first place with these hyper growth mega cap technology stocks like Apple hitting two trillion this week. I just think it's a reminder of growth leading the charge in what's been a fairly narrow breadth market. And it's a reminder this week of how we got here, Leslie, in the first place. Right. And Scott, there was actually a note out from Goldman Sachs. They sift through the 13F filings every quarter, which showcase uh, the long positions for hedge funds. And they said actually the tilt away from value toward growth was the most extreme in the second quarter that they'd seen uh, in about 18 years since they started tracking this, the 18-year history that Goldman has started tracking uh, those two factor tilts. And so I think you're right. It's fascinating when you look at, you know, all of the uncertainty, all of the volatility that we were uh, expecting during the second quarter amid what was going on with the pandemic, all the shutdowns, all the questions surrounding, you know, what this country, what this economy would look like. Uh, hedge funds, at least, were piling into growth names uh, away from value. Short interest was the lowest they had seen in 15 years. So it's clearly uh, a, the environment where people are really, really taking risks, Carl. Uh, it's true. And if Kramer were here, Leslie, uh, we would probably have our daily uh, discussion about how the market is not a true indicator of the overall economy. Mm -hmm. We've been talking about, I guess, I guess we're calling them the awesome eight. That's what Lizanne Saunders <laughs> called them this morning. Uh, the Netflix, Google, Microsoft, NVIDIA, now Tesla being thrown into that group. But at the same time, uh, mortgage delinquencies, J.P. Morgan with an alarming note yesterday went from 4-4 in Q1, the delinquency rate on mortgages, mm -hmm. to 8-2. Uh, it's the biggest ever quarterly increase. Claims, Scott, back above a million. 
Uh, so anyone looking for the stock market to give them a report card on the economy is going to have to use a very big caveat. It's got very large blind spots, as we said this week, because it's not taking into account household pressure and certainly small business pressure, which we hope to get some movement on in Congress this weekend. No one wants to hear it either, Carl. When you when you try and, and have a, a conversation with investors, as we've been doing on halftime and you guys have been doing in the morning, uh, about all the risks that allegedly are out there, whether it's, you know, this morning on Squawk, Gottlieb talking about this resurgence or what he calls the third act of the virus and even more pervasive in, in, in parts of the country. Or Steve Leisman yesterday with this exclusive data on CNBC describing the intense pain on Main Street or the jobless claim numbers back over a million or the economic data that you just cited. Nobody wants to hear it because you've got the, the awesome eight, as you put it, as Lizanne Saunders coined on, on Twitter this morning, that's been carrying the load for the market. You've got the Fed underneath the whole thing. And there's no reason to believe, at least the bulls don't want to believe, that anything could stop the, the market from going up, despite all of the risks that may be out there. The fact that this market is so narrow in terms of how it's, how it's risen no matter what, Leslie, risks you bring to the table, it's hard to convince people that this market's going anywhere but either where it is now or even higher from here. What's fascinating, too, is the two best-performing asset classes this year, the NASDAQ and gold. So if you look at that, you see the NASDAQ, you see those awesome eight type companies, growth companies, tech companies, you know, that stay at home trade that we continue talking about. But then also gold has been a stellar performer while off today, uh, you know, it surpassed that $2,000 mark. And that's considered historically at least a safe haven for people that are concerned about too much equity exposure. So it's clear that there are a lot of uh, risks out there. You listen to all these earnings calls and people say, yeah, we had a better quarter than expected. Again, uh, you know, a lot of companies did away with guidance. So the actual estimates uh, and what was actually priced into the market is a little more unclear than it has been in the past. Uh, but, you know, looking ahead, they say we're not exactly sure what the future holds. Uh, a lot of companies haven't reinstated dividends that they've, they've uh, you know, scrapped for the year. Uh, and so I think, mm -hmm. especially as we look ahead to the election, uh, there are a lot of question marks, Carl. Yeah, uh, you're right. Although Foot Locker did, did reinstate the Foot dividend Locker today. And That's right. Deer, uh, and, and Deer did up their guide. So... Um, it's not it's not black or white. You mentioned the election, Leslie. And even as the president continues to tweet repeatedly about Nasdaq all time highs, uh, nominee Biden now uh, did talk about the economy in somewhat broader terms as he accepted the nomination last night. Take a listen. My economic plan is all about jobs, dignity, respect and community. Together, we can and will rebuild our economy. And when we do, we'll not only build back, we'll build back better. Right, we'll talk more about uh, some of the takeaways from the convention this week and what we can look forward to out of the RNC, Scott, next week. But, um, it, the, you know, we've talked so long about at what point would the market start pricing in election risk, whether or not that's ta tax risk or policy risk. But within 75 days now, that, that conversation is going to get more acute. And maybe it begins after the beginning of next week, Carl, after, you know, the Republicans hold their convention and then the markets can be hyper focused now on what's really at stake for the market, what the polls are showing after the conventions are over. Um, you know, the big deal from investors that, that I talk to is, OK, 
if it's a Democratic sweep, um, then you've got a whole different story. Mark Lasry was on with us the other day. Um, he's a Democrat, right? He's a supporter of the Democratic ticket. And when I asked him what it would mean for stocks if there was a sweep in November by the Dems, um, even he says it wouldn't be a good thing for the market. Now, the flip side of that is you say, OK, Biden wants to take the corporate rate up uh, back up to 28 percent. I've also heard from big money investors say, OK, well, that's obviously not great for earnings. And that's going to be a hit for earnings and then thus a hit for stocks. But you also may offset that by not having the kind of tensions you've had in the tariffs with China. So maybe that's a bit of an economic offset. That's what sort of the, the, the money view, the big money view is of the current period. But maybe it becomes more acute once the conventions are over and you really have a good look, <clears throat> excuse me, at where we stand towards November. And I think there's such a bifurcated uh, economic policy within the Democratic Party right now that it's unclear exactly, you know, what a Biden presidency would mean for the economy, would mean for taxes, uh, because you have so many loud voices on the progressive side calling for, you know, additional stimulus, calling for uh, taxing the rich to pay for additional programs. Uh, but then you also have what's traditionally seen as more of a moderate candidate, uh, a moderate vice presidential candidate. Uh, and so people aren't sure exactly how aggressive he would be right out of the gate in in making some changes with regard to the economy, with regard to tax policy. You know, the other thing, Carl, is this yeah, the whole thing Dan. about stimulus. You know, we, we you said at the top of the show, I think if if you know, if Kramer were here, you'd be having a conversation about how the stock market is not representative of the economy. But we sort of talk in the context of, of what would get D.C. Uh, off of their backsides and actually get something done for for more stimulus. And you keep hearing, well, as long as the stock market is is high, it's going to reduce the impetus for lawmakers in Washington to fast track some sort of stimulus effort. But yet we say the stock market isn't representative of the economy. So so which is it? I mean, we we know the economy is in bad shape. But if even that if 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 lawmakers in D.C. need the stock market to, to fall out of bed, to push them to the to the table. Maybe we're looking at the whole thing wrong. I don't know. Right No, this this goes back to the member tarp and the tarp tantrum and how that <laughs> built the fire in the living room that got Congress to act back during the crisis. Um, that's not happening this time. And we know why, because the stock market is being held up by these enormous pillars of mega cap tech. And so we're not going to get that tantrum. And maybe that's why the speaker yesterday rejected this idea of passing a standalone unemployment benefit package this weekend because it would narrow her uh, leverage on other issues down the road. It's very, very complicated. And as for taxes, uh, Scott and Leslie, you're absolutely right. Uh, it's not just corporate taxes. It's also the degree to which a Democratic White House and Congress would try to raise taxes on households and income. And that is something Biden also addressed last night. Take a listen. We don't need a tax code that rewards wealth more than it rewards work. I'm not looking to punish anyone. Far from it. But it's long past time the wealthiest people and the biggest corporations in this country paid their fair share. All right. So we're, we're definitely going to hear echoes of that next week. It's been a, a common refrain that we've heard, you know, from Senator Elizabeth Warren for quite some time, uh, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, uh, Senator Bernie Sanders. Uh, this redistribution of wealth has been a key theme uh, in the Democratic Party. So it was interesting to hear it um, from uh, the nominee, Joe Biden, last night with regard to his plans. Uh, no specifics with regard 
to how he plans to do that per se. Uh, I know that you know historically they've looked at various tax policies and uh, as as a means by which to do that. Uh, but the research out there says that. You know, it's not clear exactly how much uh, revenue you can drum up from raising taxes, say, on capital gains, uh, you know, changing changing the taxation of capital gains, uh, changing the taxation of carried interest in order to pay for some of these programs. Uh, and then, you know, when you look at 2020, you know, this economy, uh, you know, by and large, has been propped up by stimulus this year. Uh, so when you look forward, you know, how do you pay for that in the future when we do get a vaccine, uh, when things do hopefully uh, resume some sense of normalcy? Uh, I think that's going to be something that, uh, you know, whoever is in the White House uh, will have to tackle. I, th I think you also have to temper it, Carl, with, with the view of are you are you really going to be able to raise taxes in the face of, of a pandemic, which which is still going to be ongoing um, in, in January, right? We're not going to be past it yet. We'll hopefully have a, a vaccine. The economy is not going to be even close back to, to what it was. You, you got a view from the Fed this week that it's going to be a long road ahead, not to mention the fact that, you know, nominee Biden can, can say what, whatever he wants. If the Democrats don't take the Senate, then a lot of the tax talk um, feels moot to me uh, because you're not going to be able to pass the kind of legislation that he may, you know, think that he wants to. So we have to wait and see how that unfolds and really where the economy is. You know, is he really going to yeah. press forward and try and raise taxes in the face of of, a, a, of an economy that is, you know, standing on one leg? Right. I, I, I think that's a great point. And Leslie, I mean, American companies have raised what, $1.7 trillion in new debt, right? Those are debt obligations that are going to start to crowd out their ability to spend money on uh, capital spending, on R&D, on wider employment. Mm -hmm. So to pile taxes on top of those obligations, I don't know, it could be a stretch. And not, not to mention the fact that 28 might be an aspirational number. Maybe he settles for 24, as some have suggested on our air this week. So it, it, it's complicated. And anyone who tells you that the policy picture post-November is clear uh, isn't, isn't being honest. Well, that, that's a good point. The debt levels are a good point. And then also just the tremendous amount of bankruptcies that every bankruptcy expert you speak to says, you know, the third quarter, the fourth quarter of this year are when the chickens are really going to come home to roost because a lot of the stimulus plans that have been put in place uh, have kind of filtered through at this point. You're seeing the Giants of the market get bigger. You're seeing the little guy get squeezed. We've talked about this daily here on this network. Uh, but in terms of Chapter 11, Chapter 13 filings, you know, those are something that we should look forward to uh, throughout the remainder of the year. And, and how that impacts uh, policy in Washington will be something to keep an eye on as well. All right, guys, really quick on Tesla. Uh, as Scott mentioned earlier, the rally continues to roll on a day after the stock surpasses the $2,000 mark for the first time. Today's the record date for that five-for-one split, with split-adjusted trading set to begin August 31. Uh, Scott, we now know that Musk is the fourth richest man in the world. We've had analysts like Adam Jonas uh, seem to get religion. The question is, is this about battery day? Is this about trying to get in front of an S&P inclusion. Lots of unanswered questions on Tesla. Carl, the stock's up 40% in August. I mean, I just like <laughs> do a mic drop right, right there. Um, that's incredible in and of itself. But of course, Tesla uh, tops $2,000 a share because that's, like I said at the beginning of the show, that, that's sort of representative of, of where we are, where these kinds of stocks 
continue to rise almost unabated. Um, is some of it or, or most of it fundamentally driven? Maybe. Is 40 percent in August fundamentally driven? Well, you decide. You know, I, I don't know. OK, so you get the record date. You get some of the delivery um, information, you know, Musk, et cetera. But 40 percent in August. Just chew on that for a second. And even Elon Musk himself <laughs> in May, uh, you know, he's, he tweeted out, you know, Tesla stock too high IMO. Which, you know, according to, uh, you know, millennial lingo means, in my opinion, I'm told, uh, Tesla stock <laughs> up 156 percent. So, you know, if you sold shares that day, which if I recall on May 1st, the stock went down when, you know, the CEO of a company tweets that they believe that their stock price is too high, you know, then you say, OK, well, what do they know that I don't know? I'm going to sell. Uh, well, you would have missed out on 156 percent gains. That's just a couple of months. I mean, you look at this chart and it, it, it just defies gravity. Yeah, no, it's amazing. Remember, we used, to, we used to watch the horse race of market cap between Tesla and GM. <laughs> now it's a horse race between Tesla market cap and the entire auto industry. Uh, one of the most amazing stories probably of the decade. Uh, right now, guys, uh, U.S. Postmaster General Louis DeJoy is testifying before the Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee. Of course, lots of uh, debate about the USPS this week. We're going to watch developments on that. In the meantime, quick commercial break as futures are red but have come off early morning lows. Squawk on the streets back in a moment. Let's get straight to the point. You want to grow your portfolio to fight rising costs of inflation or pay off your debt or anything standing in the way of you and financial freedom, right? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, can help. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been helping great investors like you. Whether you're a seasoned investor or just looking for tips, Yahoo Finance makes it super easy by putting all the tools and data you need in one spot. Yahoo Finance takes a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and more. You can securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. That's how Yahoo Finance gives you insights and helps you take a look at your wealth in its entirety. That big picture perspective is what great investors need. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor. YahooFinance.com, the number one financial destination. YahooFinance.com. That's YahooFinance.com. Uber and Lyft won't halt operations in California. For now, a state appeals court paused a lower court ruling that required the ride-hailing companies to reclassify their drivers as employees. The temporary reprieve gives Uber and Lyft until 5 p.m. Pacific on Tuesday to file written statements agreeing to expedited procedures stated in the order. You can see Uber and Lyft down a little bit today. Uh, but yesterday, when this news broke, guys, uh, the shares Definitely, we're, we're solidly in the green. Uh, it's interesting because it's kind of a kick the can down the road move. Uh, and California, of course, represents a, a relatively small proportion uh, of those two companies' uh, rides. However, it's, it's a, a remarkable ruling, and, and it definitely calls into question what they've, what they've been able to accomplish in terms of their business model so far, Scott. And Leslie, I think you said it well. It, it seems to me to be just a matter of time before Uber and Lyft are going to have to make some significant changes to their business model, whether it's in California or elsewhere. 
you know, these companies are, are under pressure, more Uber, obviously, because of the international presence relative to Lyft in international markets um, where these issues have been, been, you know, debated for an awfully long time. You said kick the can down the road. I think that's the right way to see it. If you think if you're an investor in these stocks and you think, well, it's just a matter of time before they're going to have to make significant changes. What, Carl, do you do? Um, with these shares if you think that they're going to have to do this. And then you pile on top of it just the unknown behavior of what consumers are going to be like, mm-hmm. both now in the pandemic and on the other side of it, whether you're not going to want to take public transportation so you're more willing to get into somebody else's car, or if you don't want to even get into somebody else's car, whether that continues to hurt these businesses on the other side of COVID. Yeah. Uh, you know, Scott, I always come back to your interview with Chanos about Uber. Mm -hmm. It was April 2. (laughs) And he made the point that because they haven't paid benefits for unemployment, those drivers were never, you know, they never paid into the pool is how Chanos put it. And he said that parties, the political parties would look hard at that. And he was right. However, the prospect of having no Uber or Lyft service, especially in COVID, where public transit has completely turned upside down, maybe these companies have a little more leverage than we might have thought uh, back in April. Yeah. I agree. I think the timing is really important here, that if we saw uh, this ruling and then the the appeals court ruling maybe a year ago or so, we'd be having a totally different conversation. But Uber and Lyft's businesses are already under tremendous pressure. They saw uh, Uber, I think, saw ridership decline about 70 percent during the second quarter as people stayed home. They were, you know, very reticent about getting into uh, someone else's car. They don't know where that person's been or who they've been exposed to. To the cleaning measures, uh, while they say they've improved, it's, you know, it's up to the driver, of course. And so you as a writer put your fate in their hands. Uh, you know, I think it'll be interesting to see how this impacts them. But clearly they are fighting hard to keep this business model alive. All right, guys, take a quick break here. Get ready for the opening bell. Uh, in a few moments, we'll dig down a little bit on the earnings that we're getting on this summer Friday from Foot Locker and Deer and Ross stores. Plenty more to get to regarding uh, GE and Facebook and Tesla and Delta. Back in a moment. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Edinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Watching some uh, pre-market gainers on the Dow. Apple on top today means there might be some uh, support on what is likely to be a lower than normal volume day, given that it's a Friday in August. We'll watch the opening bell when we get it in just under five minutes. Welcome back on this uh, Friday morning as we get the opening bell in about a minute's time. Uh, Scott, you know, it's been a remarkable week for retail. The blowout numbers from the Walmarts and the Targets and the Lowe's and the depots of the world. Uh, But then we got a different picture from others like Estee Lauder. If you're in specialty or uh, categories that have been structurally hampered by the uh, lack of travel or duty free or what have you, the the, the bifurcation in retail continues to astound. Yeah. Um, Reminded also with Ross stores, right? Mm -hmm. 33 percent drop in sales. Carl, uh, they're a big reminder this week of the haves and the have nots when it when it comes to retail. Walmart and Target and Lowe's and Home Depot the real winners in that space versus, you know, the, the ones who are struggling and who are going to continue to struggle. Some of the numbers that we got in the big box blowout, if you want to call it that, that we are just astounding in terms of where profits are for those companies relative to everybody else. You truly understand the pain of 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 
of the have-nots. I don't know how else you say it, Leslie. I mean, you've got companies that are doing great and then those that are not. Foot Locker today beats, you know, their guidance. Can't, it's hard to give guidance, obviously, in the environment. Comps, 18%. And again, the backdrop against Ross with a 33% drop in sales. It tells you exactly where we are. Right. I think you said it perfectly when you said the word bifurcation because you look at businesses like Home Depot, Lowe's, Walmart, Target, all of which were deemed essential. Oh, and here we are with the opening bell. Already just yep. five uh, seconds away. Let's take away. a look at it, guys. <laughs> yes. Uh, as uh, Brett fills in, as we said earlier, um, NASDAQ and S&P shooting for four weeks up. Uh, this would be the longest monthly, or I'm sorry, weekly win streak for the S&P of the year. Um, NASDAQ, of course, 35 records so far this year. And the Dow is trying to play some catch up here, but needs about 191 points to go green for the week yeah. itself, Leslie. Uh, but to your larger point uh, about retail and I mean, we sort of knew this picture going in. I'm not sure people counted on the degree to which the uh, the favorability would would differ between large and small players. Well, I'm look- I was going to say, I'm looking right now at Foot Locker, right? If you want to continue this retail conversation for a second, Foot Locker is up almost 7 percent. Carl, sort of underscoring the point that we're making. And as I pull up, Ross stores, uh, Ross stores are, are, are flat. Um, maybe, maybe the view there is, you know, uh, how much worse can it, can it possibly get for a stock that's down, you know, 10% over the past few months? Leslie? Well, I think that's true. And it also comes down to kind of what you're selling if you're a retailer. I mean, if if you are under stay-at-home orders during the second quarter, I mean, you're. I think that the CEO of Estee Lauder said you're not going to be wearing lipstick under your mask. I, for one, can attest to that. There is no point of wearing lipstick, and it just makes the mask all messy. Um, and then you're also not going to be out there buying a bunch of new clothes because you have nowhere to go. You have no vacations. You have no, uh, you know, cool Instagram pictures to be taking in your new clothes. So I think just the state of the consumer and what they're spending money on. And we heard this uh, from the CEOs of on the earnings calls, especially with kind of the home renovation trade. People are spending their discretionary money on home renovations. They're spending it at more of these kind of diversified big box retailers, uh, but they're not spending it on traditional discretionary items, clothes, purses, makeup, things like that that are, uh, you know, seen as luxuries during good times. And there's just no point for people to be doing that right now. Yep. Um, We'll talk more about that even as we're getting more signs today that there is some marginal reopening in various uh, parts of the economy, movie theaters for one. But we're getting some uh, breaking news on uh, Amazon, a personnel change that we're going to get to Deirdre Bosa on. Good morning, Dee. Hey, guys, this is a big one. Jeff Wilkie, he is currently the CEO of Worldwide Consumer plans to retire from Amazon in the first quarter of next year. This is according to a filing that Amazon made to the SEC. Uh, Dave Clark, who is the senior VP Worldwide Operations, will be succeeding him. Now, Jeff Wilkie has been at the company for, I believe, more than two decades. He's been described as only the second most important Jeff, of course, Jeff Bezos being the first one. He is one of a handful of direct reports to Bezos. I believe there's about nine or ten of them. Uh, In his current role, he oversees many of Amazon's core businesses, including retail and operations. The filing doesn't give a reason for the retirement, and I believe he is still relatively young, but there's no reason to believe that there's anything more to this than his retirement. Uh, Jeff Bezos has done a good job of surrounding himself by veterans of the company, many who have been there for a very long time. Uh, Dave Clark is one of them who will be succeeding Wilkie. Back to you guys. 
All right, Deirdre, uh, fascinating. But there's not an overstatement to say that this is an executive who one day might have been seen as a successor to Bezos himself. I think that's a really good point, Carl, though. Bezos is still young. Wilkie was seen as the number two. So it is interesting. There are other people who could take that role, however, including Dave Clark. And of course, there's Andy Jassy, who spearheaded AWS. So there are a number of other candidates, although it is certainly a big loss for the company because he does oversee so many critical businesses. You can only imagine for someone who's been at Amazon that long, how much uh, his stock options would be worth at this point uh, and seen a, a tremendous run up uh, in those decades that he was there. Deirdre, thank you. Absolutely. You, you know, guys, the other the other point I want to make about the market, it's interesting if you look at various stocks and sectors and how they're doing. It's, it's notable that, you know, you've got this this vaccine. We're talking about retail and, and reopen and things like that. You've had, you know, pretty decent vaccine news this week, Pfizer and, and BioNTech um, regarding their side effects. And then you get the J&J &J news with a, a very big trial of 60,000 people. Um, and there's little movement, <clears throat> excuse me, in, in those stocks. J&J &J is, is down just a touch this morning. Um, kind of surprising, I, I would think, that you don't have a little more of a lift from, from those names in particular, maybe particularly J&J, &J, where there's a lot of promise around what they're doing and a stock that's only up 3% over the past few months, Carl. Uh, it's true. Uh, I mean, I remember when, um, when, when the market went bananas just on some anecdotal mm. evidence on remdesivir. I mean, we're a long way from that. We've been conditioned uh, to take these things with larger grains of salt. Uh, if Jim were here, uh, Leslie, he'd probably argue that J&J is not promotional. And to have them repeat the message that they see a vaccine in early 2021 is honestly encouraging. But, um, it, you know, we get a little bit less for our uh, bang for our buck these days on that news. That's the case. And it seems like the market's just shrugging off a lot of the macro news in general, uh, as well as the micro news in general. But the lack of fiscal stimulus, uh, remember when that used to move the markets? These days, people are just saying, you know, well, we'll, we'll see it when we see it. Uh, you know, the fact that we still haven't really gotten, uh, you know, too much from Washington um, it seems like it's no longer as much of a red flag, considering we, we still don't have that. And yet we saw the S&P 500 blow through, uh, you know, the record highs this week uh, that it set in February. I, I was joking with my husband at the dinner table that it's almost as if the only thing that's different between now and February is that it's currently pumpkin spice latte season. <laughs> you know, that wasn't the case in February. That was over. But now that we're in August... We can drink our pumpkin spice lattes and, and, you know, and that's the only change. You know, the other According thing we haven't, the other thing we haven't really, really discussed is, is we're looking at the S&P right there. I'm, I'm looking at the heat map, uh, you know, over my shoulder here. And there's, you know, there's obviously a lot of red uh, on the screen as it relates to the S&P, even though it's only down a, a few points. Carl, half the S&P is, is negative year to date, right? More than half. I know there's been this intense focus on the, on the fact of the, Amazing eight or the big five, you know, whatever you want to call it. But half of the S&P negative year to date just speaks to the, the breadth within the market, which raises flags, at least in some corners. But but as I said, when you raise those issues, everything always comes back to, look, we're going to get to the other side of the virus you know, if things get even worse, you're going to get more stimulus somehow out of D.C. And then overriding everything, mm -hmm. superseding the conversation, of course, is the Fed. 
You're, what you just said, Scott, is exactly what Mohamed Alarian tweeted a few moments ago. Same price action, he says, playing out in futures at least, where you get disappointing economic news, pushes stocks down, triggers a buy the dip based on liquidity backed technicals, uh, the economic market disconnect grows even more. That, that's, mm. that sort of sums up where we are at large, right? The macro data is not all that encouraging unless you want to call the recovery from Q2 GDP encouraging. Uh, but there's this inherent um, buy option because of what we believe central bankers and to a lesser extent congressional authorities will do in response. And, and the, the, the buy option in a particular place within the market, which remains, you see it again this week with technology, with the NAS and the NAS 100 hitting those new highs. It's why we, we raise this level of skepticism that the value trade really does have legs or whether it's yet another uh, head fake in a litany of head fakes that we've gotten over the last many years when people have said now is values moment and it's turned out to work for a week. Well, right. well, here's a statistic on right. uh, the anti-value trade for you. Going back to that Goldman report, uh, the most popular long positions held by hedge funds in the second quarter uh, trade at a P.E. multiple of 28 times, guys. That's versus 19 times for the S&P. Huge premium. They say it's the largest valuation premium on record. So, you know, the so-called smart money is really piling into these names that we talk about. They said it's the eighth consecutive quarter with the same top five stocks as the most popular positions. Amazon, Microsoft, Facebook, Alibaba, Alphabet. In fact, Amazon has been either the one or two most popular companies for hedge funds to own uh, going back about three and a half years. Uh, and these trades, it's, it's been painful for hedge funds who have ignored them. It's been painful for hedge funds who have shorted them. Uh, and so, you know, at this point, you kind of just have to throw in the towel and say, I've learned my lesson. I can't avoid to not own these names and, and completely uh, underperform the index. And so, you know, if you can't beat them, you join them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's true. Uh, that said, though, guys, um, fundamentally, at least on headlines, there is some interesting action today. Deers leading the S&P, as we said, 257 beats 126 pretty handily. They did raise their guide. Uh, the casinos, Scott, uh, responding pretty well to at least tiny signs of stabilization in areas like Macau. I don't know if you noticed, but in Philadelphia, September 8, they're bringing back indoor dining, movie theaters and performing mm -hmm. arts. And then AMC, although the stock is down, is bringing uh, a lot of theaters back in North America, even with extremely discounted uh, ticket costs. It's all about yeah. the food. You know, 15 cent tickets uh, just gets you in the door. And then as Contessa showed us yesterday, uh, then you're going to spend, you know, $5, $10 on popcorn and drinks and all that. So <laughs> right. I think that's their goal there. Well, may maybe you have a, a little bit of a window as well, Carl. If, you know, if Philadelphia is bringing back indoor dining, um, I know that, you know, the, the mayor of New York City has been sort of resident, uh, 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 hesitant to do that. Um, but maybe the, you, you start to have a window here of opportunity until you get later into the fall, maybe into November or such, where you, you get those predictions from a Gottlieb who say you're going to have this, this resurgence. The word he used, the, the third act. Uh, huh. I just wanted to quote him, him directly, this third act of the virus. So maybe you have a window to get some economic activity going and help these businesses, these small businesses, which remember, restaurants only got like 10 percent of the PPP. 
They're struggling intensely. Um, in Philadelphia, at least, restaurateurs, Mark Vetri, he's a huge name um, he, he, d- down there. He's to what, you know, a Danielle Balud is to New York City. And people like that uh, have been arguing that you need to get this activity and this economic engine, Carl, back going. Um, you, you've got to do it sometime, so do it now. Yeah, yeah, I think some schools have that same philosophy. Let's get some in, in class, in-person classes while we can, knowing uh, that the fall may not give us uh, an extended chance on that. So most sectors are, in fact, negative. Financials eking out a small gain. Let's get to Bob Bassani this morning. Hey, Bob. Good morning, guys. Ha- happy Friday. Um, modest weakness at the open. Um, I would say we're flattish for the week overall. Again, tech dominating. I think the important tone was set, though, overseas. Let's just take a look here because uh, Asia had a very good session. Nikkei was up. All of China was uh, on the upside. Uh, it was Europe that had a problem when they announced very early on uh, after the open the flash PMI numbers. The manufacturing and services numbers were much weaker than expected calling into question, again, the extent of the new rebound that's going on over in Europe. And they've had a nice rebound. And you can see Germany, Spain, in fact, all of Europe sort of weakened uh, a short time after those PMI numbers were uh, announced here. Here in the United States, of course, we still don't have any progress on the stimulus bill. Not sure whether that's going to go into September and how, who knows how long. I think that's weighing on the markets a little bit. Again, you see tech dominance here and communication services, but industrials, energy and banks, the usual story here, um, lagging the overall uh, market. Market. Mega caps are sort of on the mixed side. You know, Apple's just keeps moving every day a little bit. It's up 12% this month, 12% this month. Amazon's up probably 5% or so this month. Everything else is up in the mid-single digits uh, here. So these are the engines uh, uh, for the movement of the stock market. We keep struggling with ways to describe how sort of narrow some of these advances have been, that it is largely still tech oriented stocks and to a lesser extent healthcare dominating the market. I just want to show you another way. You can slice and dice these a lot of ways of how many stocks are lagging. So the S&P is at a new high right now. But if you look at the number that are from 52 week highs, 35 percent of the S&P 500 is 25 percent or more off a 52 week high. That's one way of looking at it. Another way is more than 60% of the S&P 500 is 10% off a new high. So think about this. With the S&P at a new high, essentially, 60% of the S&P is at least 10% or more away from a new high. Now, it's not unusual for stocks and sectors to lag when you hit new highs. That happens all the time. What I think is a little unusual here is the numbers lagging and the very, very wide disparity that we are seeing. The, the, the dispersion is very wide. So here, look, energy is 40 percent from its high and, and the, the historic highs for energy were years ago. Banks are a third off of their 52 week highs. Even industrials, which have done comparatively well, cyclical stocks are 11 percent. REITs are 15 percent off the high. And even the small cap Russell 2000 is essentially 10 uh, percent off of its 52 week highs. So, again, it's it's not the fact that there are laggards. There's always laggards when you hit new highs. It's the dispersion. It's really, really wide and, and it's getting wider. Uh, it may not be the all time historic dispersion, but it's getting close. Finally, you guys mentioned deer. Um, I thought this was very interesting. I read the press release and this is what caught my eye. We talk a lot about furloughs leading to layoffs. Listen to this. The company has announced broad employee separation programs that will be completed during the fourth quarter in support of its strategy to create a leaner, more agile organization. They say they're going to save $175 million doing this employee separation. This is the new term for uh, layoffs that we're hearing here. There's a historic high for deer. Guys, back to you. New reality. Some creative Uh, ones this year. 
Yeah. Yeah. This, Sorry, this, Scott. No, no worries. No worries, What, what would George Carlin say? <laughs> what would George Carlin say? <laughs> what would Carlin say? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I'll tell you what he'd say. Okay, everybody. You separate over here. You guys stand over there. <laughs> <laughs> Bob, thank you. I got to get up to Rick Santelli. We do have some PMI data due out in moments. Rick? Yes, and Scott, some very solid PMI data as well. These are the preliminary August reads from market on the manufacturing side, 53.6. That is the best read since January of 2019. On the services side, and of course, that's the biggest part of the U.S. economy, it came in at 54.8. 54.8, that is the best read on services since February of last year. And finally, let's put it all together in a composite number, which is 54.7. That follows 50.3. So this is super solid, and that is the best number since February of last year as well. So even though Europe may have had weak PMIs, that isn't the case here. Now, as far as our market conditions go, it hasn't been a great week. If you were looking for Treasury yields to move higher, maybe getting some type of endorsement to some of the questions regarding why the stock market's so strong. Here's an intraday of 10s. You can see that we briefly were trading around 62 basis points. We've rebounded a bit, so we're getting closer to unchanged. But a one-week chart will reveal that at the lows today, we're down 10 basis points on the week. We have come back a bit. And if you want to know the all-time low yield close, that was in early August. Let's start the chart there. So you can clearly see that we weren't able to hold some of that sell-off that pushed rates higher when it seemed as though the auction demand started to waver. We also saw some of these prices do a U-turn. And finally, very quickly, look at a three-day chart of the euro currency, really losing ground. In three days, it's gone from 119 and two-thirds to a little over 117 and a half. That's almost a 2% drop in three sessions. Leslie, back to you. Rick, I think you're right to point out that there were some concerns among traders over here uh, that the weaker PMI numbers in Europe would translate to uh, U.S. PMI numbers. But as you mentioned, that's not the case. And now uh, we are looking at markets moving somewhat sideways, but going from a mixed session to now uh, in the green, you can see the Dow is up about 30 points, uh, S&P flat right now. We're taking we're going to take a quick commercial break. Stay with us. The U.S. Postmaster General now testifying before Senate lawmakers. Ilan Moy has the latest for us. Good morning, Ilan. Good morning, Scott. Postmaster General Louis DeJoy now taking questions from senators in the Homeland Security Committee. So far, he's told them that he is committed to the post office's nonpartisan mission. He's also defended himself against accusations of conflict of interest. And he said that he believes the post office is ready for the election. I want to assure this committee and the American public that the Postal Service is fully capable and committed to delivering the nation's election mail securely and on time. This sacred duty is my number one priority between now and Election Day. The Republican chairman of the committee, Senator Ron Johnson, said that even if every voter sent in a mail-in ballot, that would only represent a roughly 6% increase in weekly mail volume and that the Postal Service is well positioned to handle that excess capacity. Democrats, however, they came out swinging. The ranking member of the committee, Senator Gary Peters, questioned whether DeJoy should even remain in his job. Mr. DeJoy, your decisions have cost Americans their health, their time, their livelihoods, and their peace of mind. I believe you owe them an apology for the harm you have caused 
and you all, all of us, some very clear answers today. Now, this all comes before the House is set to vote tomorrow on a bill that would reinstate Postal Service operations to the level they were at back in January. It also includes $25 billion in funding for the Postal Service. There's a bipartisan bill in the Senate that also would provide USPS extra money. Carl, I would point out that uh, Postmaster General Louis DeJoy, he also supported that extra funding for the post office despite its long-term financial strain. Back over to you. Hmm. Uh, we'll continue to monitor the hearing, uh, Elon, uh, with your help in advance of whatever news we might get from Congress uh, this weekend. By the way, coming up in the next hour, the president and CEO of the NAACP, uh, Derek Johnson, is going to be with us, who says the president's attack on voting by mail is another form of voter suppression. We did get those pretty good numbers from uh, the flash PMIs, as Rick just told you, and we'll get existing homes in a few moments as housing continues to be on fire. Dow's gone green. Former Trump advisor Steve Bannon, as you probably know by now, has pled not guilty to federal charges accusing him of defrauding donors in a border wall fundraising scheme. Uh, Robert Frank this morning has a closer look Mike at Bannon's one, financial two, three, world. Four, hey, five. Robert. Came a multimillionaire from investment banking and media, but recent years he has benefited from a large loophole in the not for profit world. Now, according to the Justice Department, he used one of his nonprofits to siphon off more than $1 million from the We Build the Wall project. Now, the indictment doesn't name that not for profit, but the description matches IRS filings for his LA based charity called Citizens of the American Republic. That group brought in $4.4 million in revenues in 2018 but spent $4.3 million on expenses, including loans to Bannon and payments to his son. It made grants of only $15,000 and spent over $1 million on management fees. Now, payments from other not-for-profits over the years include the Government Accountability Institute. That's a Florida-based not-for-profit that paid him $380,000 between 2012 and 2016. He was paid $450,000 in fees by the not-for-profit arm of Citizens United and more than a half million from a group called the Young Americas Foundation. Now, his biggest recent project is in Italy, and that's undergoing a criminal investigation. He launched a religious group there that leased a famous monastery to house a school for populist leaders. Italy's Ministry of Commerce now charging that group with making false statements to get the lease and has filed criminal charges. Bannon and the group deny any wrongdoing. And Carl, of course, he pled not guilty to those fraud charges yesterday. Back to you. You know, Robert, the president yesterday used the word showboating uh, to describe the efforts, which led some people to uh, wonder why Bannon would need to do something like that, given his wealth from Goldman and then the old saw about his royalties from Seinfeld. It's a great question. As I mentioned, he was already very wealthy before he really got into politics. Uh, but what is interesting is this large network of not-for-profits have been paying a lot of expenses, making a lot of loans to him and his family. And that will be one of the big questions for someone so wealthy. Why did he need to do this? Um, and that's something maybe we'll get more of as this case proceeds. Robert, thanks. Uh, on uh, Bannon's arrest and indictment yesterday, uh, Robert Frank. You've been listening to the opening bell on CNBC's Squawk on the Street. 
CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.